look like? What does it look like, salvation? When salvation comes and finds you, when God's protective love comes and enfolds you, what is that like? If you were to draw or paint a picture of salvation, what colors would you use? What shapes or images would you use? If you were to write a poem or a song or a story of salvation, what story would you tell? What would it sound like? In today's readings from Ezekiel and Mark, the prophet and Jesus are having a bit of a conversation about what salvation looks like when it comes and finds us. Across the centuries, of course, they're exchanging with one another expressions of the longing of God's people, a longing for God to come and rescue them. And both the prophet and Jesus have something in common. They see it the same way. Both of them imagine that when God comes to save God's people, it will be like a place where all the birds of the air can make their nests, where all the winged creatures of the world can find safety and shelter. But Ezekiel has in mind a cedar tree, and Jesus has in mind a mustard bush. And I wonder which one is right. About three years ago, when Elizabeth and I came to northwest Arkansas for the first time, we noticed that as you make your way across this great state of ours, the land seems to change as you make your way from east to west. First, the delta and the rice paddies, then the undulations of Little Rock begin to rise in the horizon. Not long after that, the river valley, and pretty soon as you turn north, the Boston Mountains, the Ozarks we love. But what caught my attention more than anything else was where are all the pine trees? Down in the southern part of the state, there are plenty of pine trees, but up here, we don't have pine trees. I grew up in Alabama. Elizabeth grew up in Alabama. We grew up in a place where the side of every highway is so thick with pine trees, you can't see more than two or three feet into the woods as you drive by. But here, these cedar trees dot the landscape, and each one kind of noble in its own way, spaced far enough apart to grab your attention. You can see not only between the trees, but even the rocky undulations underneath them. What a different way to think about home. What a different image. This week, I had coffee with a friend and colleague, Jacob Adler, uh, the recently uh, resigned, retired rector, at uh, a, a rabbi at Temple Shalom here in town. And we were talking about how where you live and the landscape around you changes the way you think about God and God's salvation, changes the way you read the Bible. I asked him about Ezekiel 17, knowing that I was going to preach about that text this week, and he smiled and said, you know, when I was asked to translate a novel that took place here in Arkansas, I had a lot of trouble with the word cedar. 
He was translating the text from English to Hebrew. And people who speak Hebrew, when they think of a cedar tree, they don't think of the trees that dot the side of the road here. The rabbi explained to me that what we have along our roads aren't cedar trees at all. They're junipers. You know, those fragrant trees with the reddish wood that if you cut them down and put them in your house at Christmas, you know what happens when you hang an ornament on the branches? They flop down to the ground, right? That kind of floppy, flimsy tree. That's not what someone who reads the story of Ezekiel has in mind. That's not what God's people knew by cedar trees. We have junipers. They have cedars, the kind of cedars with thick, magnificent trunks, with boughs that stretch 130 feet into the air, with these branches that are the expressions of strength and power and security. So when the prophet invites us to imagine God coming and taking a sprig from the top of a cedar and planting it on God's holy mountain so that it might grow up to be big enough and strong enough to make nests for all the birds of the air, that's the kind of cedar the prophet has in mind, not the cedars we know and love so well. But you know, sometimes the place you live and the culture you inhabit changes the way we hear the Bible and changes what we expect salvation to look like. Ezekiel, as he describes the image of God breaking off the top of the cedar tree, this reading we have from chapter 17 is actually the second half of Ezekiel 17, and it's the second half of a parable. We get the good half. The first part of Ezekiel 17 isn't quite as hopeful. In that first part of Ezekiel 17, it isn't God who plants a cedar sprig. It's an eagle, in the parable at least, but we're told that eagle represents the king of Babylon, that after the city of Jerusalem had been captured by these foreigners, the king of Babylon plucked off the top of a cedar, the king of Jerusalem, brought him over to Babylon and planted him and said, you're going to be my cedar tree. And God's people waited. And God's people watched, waiting for any kind of cedar to grow. After about a generation or so, the king of Babylon took a seed and planted it back in Jerusalem, and it began to grow. And God's people thought, look, new growth, a new sign of salvation. But as the parable unfolds, as you read Ezekiel 17, you discover that that seed didn't grow up to be a big, strong cedar. It turned out to be a vine, kind of like a willow tree, a vine that loves to live by the water, and if you've ever had a willow tree in your yard, you know those roots will find your water pipes wherever they are and tear them up. And sure enough, those shoots begin to spread. And at first, God's people thought this was good news, green growth, flourishing. Maybe salvation has come. But it turned out that those shoots, as the parable goes, reached out across to another eagle, this time Pharaoh, in search of some military support. This new seed, this new vine, this new king, 
thought that if he could get some support from the Egyptians, maybe he'd be strong enough to rebel against the Babylonian Empire. But you know the difference between a vine and a cedar? That vine gets plucked up without much effort. And when Egypt failed to show up, the Babylonians ransacked the city, plucked up the vine, and God's people were back at square one, desperate for salvation, desperate for God to come and rescue them, desperate for God to come and bring a salvation that allowed all of God's people to nest in its branches. Jesus wants us to think about salvation in a similar but different way. And this time, instead of a cedar tree, Jesus wants us to imagine that salvation comes as a mustard bush. That God's great protection of God's people comes not as this magnificent expression of power that God's people have been waiting on for centuries, but in this ordinary, common mustard plant that sure enough grows up to be big enough for birds to make their nests in its branches. What if, Jesus seems to say, what if we've been looking for salvation in all the right ways, but in all the wrong places? What if we've been waiting for God to come and rescue us with a great expression of power when all along God has come to meet us and to shelter us in much smaller, quieter, mysterious ways, ways that transcend our expectations, ways that even transcend the prophet's words? What if instead of waiting for a great and mighty cedar, what we're supposed to wait and watch for is the smallest of the seeds on the earth springing forth and growing up to be big enough even for birds to find shelter for their nests. We live in a place with our own form of cedar tree. We live in a world where sometimes we're desperate for salvation to come in those ways of the ancient world and expressions of power, that God would come and wipe away all that is wrong with the world. But as you drive down the highway, what do we see but those scrappy little juniper trees? We can call them cedars. Imagine, imagine God's salvation coming not only in a faraway land in a mythical way, but much closer to home, on the sides of our roads, even in our gardens, as seeds that blossom and sprout and grow to provide shelter for all. Thanks be to God. Amen.